0: The following podcast is intended for an adult audience only. It contains strong language, strong accents, strong opinions and themes of a sexual nature. So if you're under 18 or difficult to please, this is neither the podcast for you. Welcome to another episode of Varying Degrees, a BDSM podcast. I am Space Burns, and I will pass you over to my wonderful co-host to introduce our guest for this podcast. Good evening, Burns. How are you doing, mate? Very well. Very well.
1: I am really looking forward to this episode because uh, it is a subject we haven't really touched on yet. Um, It's something that um, a lot of people are curious about or maybe get involved in on varying degrees of levels. This is Rope, mate, and uh, we've got a really, really interesting guest. I kind of heard about this chap on the scene a little bit uh, a couple of years ago. And then during lockdown, I saw that he was hosting workshops online via Dating Kinky. Uh, Went along to a few of those across, cool, blimey, it's been going on so long the pandemic now. might've been, it might've been last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's probably last year. have since uh, had him to come on and uh, do a little guest session on the online workshop or, you know, rope social I was running. I remember that.
0: It was good. Everyone enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, that was just a little monthly get together. And I'm not really a rope person, so I got on people that I respected in rope in our local community. And the person we have on tonight was one of them. It was really nice to get to know him a little bit better then. Um, I've since bought rope from him. Uh, he um, has his own rope business, uh, Rope with bite. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Growley. Hello, Growley. Hi, gang. How you doing?
2: It's uh, really nice to be on. Nice to see you both. Well, thank you for joining us, mate.
1: Um, I believe you might know um, or know of Burns a little bit as well uh, prior to today.
2: We've met before. We've met at uh, Pier Reading and a few other things. Um, the rope scene is relatively small, kind of comparatively so. And do that as. It's always nice to mingle. And so, you know, I came across you in uh, you know,
1: really properly was introduced to you via uh the online workshops you were doing and you just mentioned Mm -hmm. their peer reading. So, you know, you you know, for our listeners, we know a little bit about you, but for our listeners, you know, who are you in rope? You know, it's clear from what I've said that you are involved in workshops and classes and education. But uh, you know, so how did you how did you come to be, as it were?
2: So, um, Yeah, the last uh, 13 months we've been running online workshops um, through the lockdown and through pandemic time. Um, And that's been really nice to run them remotely and meet a lot of people and get to know people across the world in a way that I hadn't before. Um, I've been rigging um, in a kink-specific way for probably about 11 years or so ish, it starts to blur at that point. And before I knew it was a thing that I could do for sexy times, I was um, a climber and I'd done outdoorsy stuff. And before that, as a child, I would tied up friends with skipping ropes. So it's always been interwoven, if you mind the pun, um, through my life. And there was that kind of moment where I learned that it was a thing that could be adapted to my sexuality. Um, and luckily, all of that time spent tying myself into harnesses and rigging and setting up belays and everything else suddenly had uh, transferable skills. Um, so I got into the local rope community. I started attending um, peer sessions, meeting people, getting into the the rope space. I took some lessons. I went round and learnt and continue to try and learn as much as I can. And it's really exciting to always be doing things and learning things and exploring what can be done and what the current trends are. And it's always a really good way of meeting people. Um, there's a really nice community across the UK where you can drop into someone else's peer, visit a new town and be like, oh, their, their peer session's on, I'll just drop in and say hi to people. So it's a really nice community that way.
1: Just for people that are new to rope and like might not be familiar with the community and the social aspects and, and even you know, in the educational aspect, um, what, what are peer sessions? What, what, you know? what are peer sessions? In a nutshell. Yeah.
2: So peer sessions are um, a learning environment that exists, especially around the rope communities, but do exist in other places. I've seen peer whips and peer fire and lots of other things. But the idea is that it is a shared learning space. So organizers of the groups will basically try and set up a space, an environment which is safe and comfortable to tie in. Um, everyone can come along meet each other, see what's happening. Um, And the idea is that you start to learn from each other. Um, You can bring along things that you know and share it with people and learn from them what they know. Uh, So you get this really nice um, collaborative community that forms. And sometimes people are running beginner sessions or sometimes even more intermediate um, to help people get over that initial hurdle of learning um and they vary depending on where you go everywhere has its own feel and mood and uh different areas have their own specialities as well so it's always interesting to see that spread out um and it's where i met um one of my current partners growley's girl um we tied together thought it was going to be a nice casual do a bit of rope together nothing nothing more to it and then uh ended up in a relationship um accidentally Uh, and then we've been tying together um since then and doing workshops touring meeting people doing stuff across the uk just been
0: really nice how for the beginner particularly would you at a peer event reconcile between giving someone enough space to tie with a partner and speaking to other people and asking questions about what they're doing
2: So I can only speak for peer reading, really, which is where um, I help organize it with, with a few of us. And we set up a few mechanisms to help support this. So we've got some wristband systems. So people are wearing red or green wristbands to indicate that they are approachable to talk about what they're doing. We set up mat spaces. So we have a nice central mat area where everyone can kind of pile in and it's very collaborative and everyone on anyone in that middle mat pile is just chatting and talking and sharing. And then we tend to set out some mats around the edge um, pushed off to one side slightly where people can just focus on their partners a little bit. And we have some little A4 signs, one with a big green tick and one with a big green cross on both sides. So you can flip it over. And basically the big green tick says, come and talk to me about what I'm doing quietly. And then the big red cross says, we're just having a bit of private time, Um, leave us alone. And by default, they're all open on this nice big green tick. And so it's really nice to have people tying People are watching them, seeing what they're doing. And generally, people start to learn that etiquette off each other of not just diving in into the middle of their scene and saying, oh, tell me about that knot, but rather just watching, listening, and then maybe afterwards saying, no, oh, could you, that was really interesting. Should you show me what you did to that leg? Or I've never seen someone tie an arm like that before. You know, where did you learn that? Could you show it me? And so that kind of collaborative chatty nature is what's really nice at peer event. There are other kind of play events where that's not, not as done and if you're at a club or something and you're just tying for for the sexy times you might not necessarily expect that someone comes up and says can you show me that um but uh, you know I tend to be quite approachable in my nature I know there are others who would prefer to keep themselves to themselves but the peer events peer events are almost by default talk to each other so you think
1: there's as much to be gained and learnt from sort of peer events about sort of social etiquette within the scene as there is about the actual skills of rope handling themselves
2: yeah I think so I think the um, I think the peer events are important places to learn about consent and how other people do things and observing how other people tie is also really important to see if all you ever see is your own side, you read from your little book at home, and you never leave your bubble. You now you don't necessarily get to see what else could happen with rope, and how different dynamics can be intertwined, and that there's a, an entire world out there that's not necessarily just learning patterns from a book.
0: Would you say that books and other forms of education can still be useful, though? Oh yeah.
2: So I'm a. I mean, I'm a massive nerd, for want of a better word. And my first uh, port of call for learning anything is to go and hoard as many resources as I can, read all the books and the blog articles, and watch all the videos, and try and just cram as much knowledge into my mind as I can. And um, none of that beats actually getting your hands on some rope and doing it. Um, and I guess there are um, there's almost a, a gradient of um learning resources out there. So books are probably the most accessible in terms of you can just get hold of a book, you can read it in private, you can keep that entirely to yourself. Um, so it's very low entry point. You don't have to go anywhere. You can read it in your own bedroom. But it's probably the slowest approach of getting started and learning. As you go through, you then have kind of learning off of videos. Um, which is nice because you get to see how someone ties rather than just following instructions. From there, you look at things like the dating kinky, for example, live videos where you can speak to the presenter back and say, can you show me that again? Hey, I'm left-handed. Can you do it upside down for me? Or you can ask those questions and get some feedback and some real time. After that is probably the peer learning because you get that real time feedback. You get to chat to people at the higher lender of, of how quickly you can learn is one-to-one tuition and while i've really enjoyed giving out tuition over video and distance and yeah, you know, we've run the sessions up here when i've been able to spend two hours with someone one-to-one walking them through a tie and instructing and correcting them so directly being able to reach and kind of touch the tension and say, "Oh, if you just change that thing there, or you make that change," there isn't upsettingly anything that comes anywhere near to the speed of learning as a one-to-one tuition time. It comes with the downside that it's it's challenging sometimes to get hold of that tuition. Like you, you have to normally pay for someone's time, um, which is is the respectful thing to do. Like if you want to have someone's expertise for a period of time it's it needs to be kind of recognized that that's um, a skill that you're asking them to share with you which makes it difficult for some people to access and there's not too many ways of getting around that so it's kind of a nice thing but it also has its own blockers peer learning for my eyes is the the happy medium that most people should aim for because you can get out touch rope do rope see other people doing rope um and they tend to be dirt cheap as well like peer reading's a fiver um and you, you'd struggle to get a pint in reading sometimes for that so um for the space and the access that you get at a peer event they are um uh, you can't see me i'm on a podcast but i'm doing the chef's kiss fingers yeah
1: i i've been uh, attending our local peer group since it started back up post lockdown and you know i'm absolutely for face-to-face learning um and learning you know in groups and one-to-one but do you think that people have to learn face-to-face in real time in order to be safe
2: it depends what you're doing um
1: i suppose i suppose it's about knowing your limits and staying within them whatever you're doing whatever level you're working at
2: staying well within the safe limit of your capabilities yeah so i have a um a potentially unpopular opinion uh Oh, we like them.
1: We like them on varying degrees occasionally. (laughs) They're good talking points.
2: So a lot of people say rope play is edge play. Like that's a, a phrase that you'll hear a lot. And that's because if you take the entire world of rope, you're doing an activity which can result in, well, worst case death, serious injury, long term injury, like the risks associated with it are high. potential risks, should I say. What that phrase often fails to take into account is the fact that some rope can be really low risk. Like if you're just doing some really gentle floor rope, you're not binding tight, you're not doing anything crazy, you're not wrapping around the neck, you've taken some basic safety and precaution steps, it's actually not that risky realistically. As soon as you start moving up to doing suspensions and you're doing complicated ties and you're putting different nerve areas at risk then yeah I agree it becomes risky and if you're doing that type of rope and you're starting to look at suspension then one-to-one time for suspension in my eyes is a must like that it's a skill that you should be learning paired directly with someone if what you want to do however is to tie your partner down to the bed and just have a little bit of fun time like you can watch a couple of YouTube videos and you're good to go, realistically. You're not actually putting yourself at any more risk than using some leather cuffs. The number of people that go out there with some horrible, stretchy, compressy cotton rope from Ann Summers and do horrible ties, that goes on. So if you're taking that first step to tie some decent first knots and you've got some safety shears on hand and you've taken those basic risk precautions, you're good to go and people make a little bit too much of a fuss about how scary rope is. So, yeah, depends what you're doing is the answer. If you're doing super high-end edge play stuff, then go and get some tuition, spend that one-to-one time. If you're tying each other to the bed and you're just having a bit of romp around time, get on YouTube.
0: Also, just as a perspective of rope bottom, I would also, just just to follow on, Crowley, from what you were saying about suspensions, how high off the ground you're going can vary and things like, as you'd said, if the arms are bound so that you would then not be able to break a fall if there was any kind of accident and if you're quite low to the ground you might well be able to temporarily lower yourself enough to take some of the pressure off. Um, actually quite recently I was doing some suspension stuff at home and I came down just for a wee minute as I realised there was some circulation issue in my arms and I said can I come down just for a minute shake it out a wee bit and, and luckily I was in an okay position to do that you know the tie wasn't restricting the arms so that I, I wasn't able to you know and once I'd done that I felt able to go back up again for a wee bit again rather than getting to a stage where I felt panicked in any way and my rigour was very careful to make sure that I was comfortable and that I was okay at every single stage. I felt so cared for and that really brought in an emotional aspect to it that I think is really valuable because I think a lot of people, when they start off, that you hear at a lot of workshops, a lot of people start to talk about the emotional connection that you get. and when I first started off, I I didn't quite get it myself. But then I think now not not to say that I have a full understanding of it, but I feel like I've learned a bit more on that. I think now might be an appropriate time to mention uh, some of the terminology. I know that um a lot of people have spoken about, oh well, what does this mean? What does that mean? And a lot of terms get bandied about like shibari and kenbaku and all the rest of it. So for the benefit of our listeners who might not know, or might well know, um, but but just for the benefit of those who might not know, just to confirm my own understanding, so my understanding of the term shibari is that it just means tying, whereas Kimbaku refers more to the emotional connection involved. Is, is, that, is that accurate?
2: I would... In my opinion, that's accurate, and it gets really hand-wavy, as do a lot of kind of terminology. The problem is if you directly translate just the word for word, yeah, shibari just means tying. It's just an action word, but you end up using that word to mean something else um, and implying meaning on it. So yeah, uh, for the most time, the opinion is normally that shibari is bondage tying. And Kimbaku is shibari plus some level of emotional connection. But they're interchangeable. So you can go and see someone and you can go and learn shibari at a Kimbaku workshop. Or you can intertwine them. Uh, you get floor work called Nawaza. You get uh, yukawaza. Like there are just loads of words that people use. I tend to these days default to just saying rope bondage. Because... It's the only word that doesn't have as many meanings layered upon it. So if I want to describe just the action, just the thing that is happening, but people just know shibari by sight, like it's a word that people within the scene recognise as meaning rope bondage. It doesn't help as well that what counts of shibari is, is changing and changeable. It's more than just a mechanical action. It's influenced. It kind of has a Japanese aesthetic, it's got to be a, a, not necessarily has to be a pretty thing, but it's often a pretty thing. It has to be effective. You get interesting edges of, in air quotes, Western bondage and kind of Japanese shibari. And so there's a little bit of conflict there on what forms things take and how the ties are structured. But there's so much cross-pollination that we're now in some kind of hybrid world where these different Schools and ways of thoughts and ways of tying and mechanisms of how you structure certain ties have leaked into each other's world so much that that it becomes really difficult to to unpick them. So, yeah,
1: yeah, that's really interesting because um, you know, and, and like you were saying earlier about it doesn't take much skill to tie somebody up to a bed. You know, it was you know relatively little skill to tie someone to a bed. Now. I've used rope in my private life for like the best part of 20 years. And I didn't really start to think about actually shibari or anything like that until a few years ago, looking at pictures, maybe about three or four years ago. But still, the first thing I ever attended in terms of education was one of your dating kinky workshops last year. (laughs) So I, I'm I'm the kind of novice here, and you know, so like it's something that I've only just started, you know, looking at and getting into. And it was probably because of lockdown, the ease of availability, and plus, what else? Mm. You, you know, no, your workshops are great, but kind of what else are we doing? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I agree. I mean, if I wasn't doing them, what else would I be doing? That's the other side.
1: <laughs> but you know, and and that opportunity for attendance was just much higher during lockdown for me because of no no need to travel. You know, it was just there in your living room. So that opportunity to attend and get into it, which means now I've actually started going to face-to-face peer rope and, you know, supporting bits online like I was doing a little while ago. But the thing that I was almost a barrier to me for a little while ago was, it seemed like a different world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you know what I mean? When you see some of the stuff you can see online and some of the terms, and you see Japanese words for ties, which are just essentially mostly usually positions. Mm-hmm and stuff like that it just seems to to someone who's maybe a bit apprehensive or nervous because even i can be apprehensive or nervous or I might not seem like it sometimes and um you know it just it kind of almost feels like sometimes that high brownness can feel like a barrier to entry for some people
2: yeah i really i I dislike the um the gatekeeping nature that some highbrow rope has um i think anyone who's seen me teach or has attended anything will be familiar with phrases like rappy rappy and um you know I, I i'm not one to sit on a set of terminology that is not useful um terminology and definitions of words are useful when you are talking to other people who have a shared understanding of those words so if i'm talking to another rigger who has that vocabulary already, and I can describe quickly without having to explain exactly what's going on. I can kind of say, oh, I tied a two-rope TK and then a toe, and then I lifted it on. And I can explain a concept very concisely because there's a shared um, knowledge and a shared understanding. Um, it takes time to learn that language to be able to communicate cleanly because it is it is in knowledge it's knowledge that is only shared between those worlds so it's important um i think still to have an appreciation that those words are there um and so if i'm teaching specific ties i'll make sure that i've described it um as accurately as i can by different words by different names that those ties are known by so that when people are trying to describe it in future they can say i learnt to tie a futomomo um like you say a lot of the, the the japanese words refer to the body shape and so early on in teaching a beginner to tie we often tie futomomo which is the shape of um, the lower leg being compressed to the thigh just a bent knee um, and it means fat thigh which refers to the uh, when you've put the rope on, it looks like a a thigh of of ham kind of trussed up and bound and compressed. So it's quite a descriptive way to describe the tie. And once you know that, you kind of look at it and be like, oh, yeah, of course it is. It looks like a a trussed up ham. It's so flattering. Um, But then it gets shortened down to futo, and you can refer to it as a futo to all the riggers, and they know kind of what you mean. Because it just refers to the shape of the thigh, I've not actually told you anything about the tie itself. What I tie as a futo might be massively different to what someone else ties, because it refers to just the body shape that is being created. You can then kind of start to say, oh, well, I tied a um, an Asada Steve futo, or I tied a spiral wrap futo. And you can start to kind of build up this language that lets you explain to someone else what's gone on. So it's useful, but it's not critical. You can still do all those things without having to know the words for it but to be able to communicate onto someone else a shared language is um effective way of communicating
0: that sounds like you're doing that in a very compassionate way which i think is a great example to set for others as it sounds like unfortunately you've experienced that some on the scene, and I'm sure that Cool Hands has seen this online as well, that some people communicate without that compassion, almost forgetting that they were at one stage at the same place that others were of being a beginner. So, Crowley, you were saying about different terminology and how it can be useful in certain situations, not so useful in others, uh, perhaps quite a nice reminder for people that they don't need to feel ashamed if they can't remember something but in terms of communication I mean there's quite a lot to it isn't there in terms of what what you've kind of touched on having the terminology to be able to communicate to other rigors for one Mm and in in terms of education that, that that's very useful but also And I suppose speaking as a rope bottom, not for all rope bottoms, I must say, but it's very useful for bottoms as well to have some of that uh, ability to communicate Mm -hmm. and awareness of their body and what's going on. So that if they do come into some difficulty or perhaps not even difficulty, perhaps just asking what they want in terms of how they want to be tied, right? I would quite like some strict leg rope or I'd, uh, right, I want my arms tied behind my back or, or whatever and knowing what to ask for.
2: Yeah. I mean, that really matters. The It goes back to that shared language again, I think. And it doesn't matter. You could, as long as you've agreed between you what the Wibble tie is, um, as long as both parties involved know what it is that they're asking for and what it is that they're getting, the word that you use to describe it is irrelevant as long as everyone involved <laughs> agrees on that definition. You know, If you are tying with different people and you're tying in things, it is nicer and probably more useful to not make up your own words for ties, but instead use slightly more commonly agreed on things. But the, uh, yeah comms is everything and that goes across all kink rope relationships life if you can talk and share what it is that you're thinking and feeling and desiring then that's the place that you can build nice things from stuff breaks down when you're not able to talk to each other
1: well it's an experience you're both sharing and like communication is always important in any relationship or shared experience and obviously anything where there's a safety aspect more so but it comes round to a term that I've heard you use in teaching, Crowley, which is acting as well. You know, the bottoming, not only, you know, not only having a shared language, maybe between the top and the bottom, but the bottom's input actively, you know, encouraged yeah. uh, and, and their involvement in the fact that it is two of you having a scene together. Is that what active bottoming means? Maybe I've got that wrong. Maybe I took that. Maybe, maybe I took away the wrong lesson
2: from that. I mean, take away whatever lessons you'd like. Um, active bottom is one of those, right, well, it's another, those strange words that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So for a while we had this um, idea of bottoms and models was often the word used where the rope bottom is there as, a, as an object to be tied. That Almost like a mannequin would do the job just as well. And you get this sometimes if you're tying for like a photo And it's always important to note the difference between making a pretty tie for a photo and making a tie for the enjoyment of everyone involved because ties for photograph are often done, not dispassionately, but you don't often get the time to have a nice engagement and and connection with the partner. And, you know, you get that idea that they are just a thing to make, to be made pretty. Active bottoming then comes back to the idea that you're in, um, a dance together you're taking part in that scene together you are both taking part you're both active you're both communicating you're moving together so while I'm tying someone and they lean back into me so I'm starting to tie like an arm up and they kind of push into it a bit they lean back into me I can kind of start to get a feel about what they're communicating back to me through the rope rather than just it being me imparting my mood onto them I also like the idea that you as a top are sometimes just creating a space for them to exist in so you're applying some physical um sensation the rope goes on you're creating an atmosphere and a mood and if you're going at and kind of hard and fast then you're creating that type of intense mood or you're doing nice calm snuggy, safe rope you can't always know what's going on inside their head um, and the story that they're telling to themselves about, you know, there are um, a princess being tied up by um, the monster in the tower and they're, they're off in their own little fantasy world. You don't know as the rigger what's going on inside their head. And so you have to make space for them to also explore where they're off to in their own little journey. So I don't often like imposing too much into my scenes with rope I don't like imposing too much onto them to kind of start whispering, aren't you a naughty little princess or something? Because if they were in the middle of imagining something else, you've just created that jarring moment. If you want to be engaging in that way, then again, the communication comes back where they're able to say, hey, I really, I'm in the mood for... I don't know why I'm on princesses today. It makes a change from pirates? Um, I'm really in the mood for being pirate rope today um you know uh, and then you can work together to create that collaborative scene but if you haven't spoken about it beforehand you're both telling these very different stories and that's not always fun if you get that collision the the grinding between the two stories is, is a problem so active bottoming is some about the communication And it's also sometimes in the physical nature. So I'm using suspension as the example just because it's almost the extreme example, but it applies to lots of different things. So um, if you're being suspended as a bottom, it's physically taxing. Like it's it's a difficult thing to do to put your body through. But you can do things to change how it feels. You can kind of clench your core to arch your back. You can point your toes in different ways to shift the load around. And you can take part in that tie by manipulating your body and kind of enjoying the different sensations that happen as you move around it. So rather than being this lump of flesh that's been put into the air, you're part of the rope and it's living and it's moving and the entire scene is then just as a top. is. And again, I'm not speaking for all tops, but it's so much more engaging for me to be tying someone who is enjoying being present in that moment with me rather than someone who is just completely full of it. I may as well go and tie my pillow at that point. It's a, uh, it's a lot more fun to be tying when someone's when everyone is engaged in what's going on.
0: I think you've made an excellent point. I, I mean, that was really, really good to hear. <laughs> uh, you made an excellent point that people aren't psychic and that's one of, the, one of the key things for communication, you know, um, especially where a lot of the issues in rope mm. aren't immediately visible. You know, if someone has potential uh, nerve pinch that could lead to nerve damage, unless they say, oh, it hurts here or oh my fingers are going numb or you know whatever it is they communicate that something's wrong mm. you won't be able to see that until it's too late anyway so you know that there is that you know this this need to communicate in, in some way and I know that a lot of people have spoken about um subspace and how when they're kind of really in the zone as it were they can kind of go non-verbal. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have developed certain hand signals or give some someone something to hold that they can then drop if they encounter in difficulty or something to kind of step around that a wee bit and still allow them to communicate if they would otherwise struggle during a scene.
2: Yeah. I'm a I'm a big fan of the two squeezers, which is where we do it outside mm-hmm. of rope as well. So as a top, I'll squeeze, squeeze a hand or something, normally a hand. um, And then I expect back two squeezes. And obviously, we've communicated beforehand that this is what I'm expecting. So I might place my finger into their hand and give them squeeze, squeeze, and I get two squeezes back. And if I get anything other than a firm two solid squeezes back, I might do it again just to make sure that they have felt. But then I'll be checking in deeper. So even if they've gone non-verbal. I'd still want them to be at a level of consciousness where they can um, return the two squeezes. So it doesn't necessarily break them out. It comes back to that story. It doesn't necessarily break them out of wherever they've floated off to because there's nothing worse than as a bottom, you've kind of drifted into your happy place. You're nicely blissed out. Everything's great. And then your top's like forcing you to use your words and communicate and is lifting you out of that altered state to Just check in just for you to tell him Mm. everything's fine. Can we carry on? So that two squeezes is something that I like to use to just have a check-in. Is everything fine? Everything's fine. So if I don't get two squeezes back, if I get one squeeze back or I get no response back, then it's an indicator for me to to kind of Mm. stop whatever is going on and have a proper check-in with them. Ask for a traffic Mm. light, ask for a color back, the red, yellow, green, or just default back to natural human language where i say is everything okay what's yeah. going on is something uncomfortable you yeah. Yeah, can actually have a conversation still yeah. so yeah that's my preferred mechanism but yeah. everyone will find things that works for them yeah, um, yeah dropping bells and yeah. holding things is always nice yeah.
1: it's not what you have in place it's the fact that you've got an agreed something in place that both parties understand yeah. exactly
2: i always end up telling a story of a uh, of a fuck up um, because fuck up's the way you learn. So I uh I had these two squeezers in place. Um and I was having some playtime. It wasn't rope-based, we were just um fighting and having some kind of pain time together. Um, both switchy, both engaging and no one really knew who was on top at any given time. Um their safe word was two taps um to say the kind of yellow mode of hey, I've had a- enough of that. For now, let's ease off. Um, so I was giving two squeezes, and I was getting back two taps. And I was like, hey, OK, let's carry on. Um, and then again, I got I got two taps from them. I was like, oh, they're checking in with me just to see everything's fine. Gave two squeezes back. And this was the miscommunication. Um, their two squeezes meant I've had enough. My two squeezes meant everything's fine. And both of us, because we were almost communicating the same language, both of us thought that we'd understood each other. Um, and it wasn't until afterwards where I went, that did go a lot harder than we thought, um, was because we were escalating off each other because of a miscommunication. Um, so yeah, that was uh, that was a, a deep lesson learned um, through a fuck-up.
1: It is how we learn sadly sometimes, you know. As so long as those fuck-ups aren't fuck-ups where anybody's got hurt or suffered any or suffered any real trauma, then it's then they, they they become less a fuck-up and more important a lesson so that you know what to avoid in case something does go properly wrong in the future. It's best best to make the little fuck-ups and learn from the little fuck-ups than it is to um experience a big one and, and real realise the wheels have come off the bus too late.
2: Even better is to learn from someone else's fuck-up. That's the, uh, the ultimate way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know what specifically about rope and what in terms of types of rope.
1: You know, we mentioned earlier, you know, people using cheap like nylon rope from, you know, from stretchy rope from sort of your Ann Summers. Stretchy rope
2: from Ann Summers. Stretchy rope from Ann Summers is my bane. So I guess the first thing is to look at what makes a good bondage rope before you dive into anything else. So a good bondage rope is very different than, for example, a good climbing rope or a good rope to hang your washing up. Or, you know, there are lots of different ropes and they all have their uses. So a good bondage rope should hold a knot well. It should be able to undo that knot once you're done. And it should help you restrain a person. And the reason that stretchy ropes don't do very really well is because they don't restrain people very well because they stretch. If you imagine tying someone up using bungee cords or elastic um, as an extreme, all they would have to do is, is stretch against the ropes and they could slip free. So non-stretching rope is really important. Aside from non-stretching rope, you also get rope that doesn't compress. So what you sometimes see as magician's cotton or... ropes that are hollow with no core and often that kind of cotton or bamboo or very fine ropes um, have no core. And when you tie a knot in them, the knots compress down into the rope and they cinch in and you can't then unpick that knot, um, which makes it quite problematic when it comes to untying. And if the person has struggled and those knots have got really tight, they can get very difficult to untie and you end up cutting your rope. So people have iterated through lots of different types of rope and the ones that get recommended get recommended because they work. So there are two main families and we talk about synthetic rope and natural rope. So natural rope has been grown from a plant and the main types that you see are jute and hemp and they act very similarly. They're natural fibers that have been spun out into threads and then twisted together form a rope, jute's a little bit lighter hemp's a little bit heavier so they have slightly different feel in the hand and how they move jute smells a little bit like cut grass freshly cut grass and then hemp has what's often described as a slightly farmyardy smell and people who don't like it sometimes describe it as a manure smell and that tends to ease off a little bit as it ages and it gets oiled in but it has a distinctive smell that some people completely melt for, like it's a, it's such a smell that people associate with being tied up, and it it drops them in. You can also get loads of weird ropes, like um, coconut and other scratchy, horrible things that you can do bizarre things with. But jute and hemp form the the two most common. On the synthetic side, you have something called hempex, which is polypropylene, and you end up with things like posh and nylon ropes so hempex is polypropylene and things like posh or polyester they are synthetic fibers that are designed to look and feel very much like natural ropes however they have some advantages and disadvantages the main advantage is they can be washed and dried without having to dry them under tension and so if you're going out and you're doing rope in peer venues and you're going to scrum all over the floor with it and you might tie lots of different people or you might go outside and tie in the woods or you might be getting them covered in mud and blood and body fluids should we say the synthetic grapes are really nice for being able to throw it in the washing machine they tend to be significantly stronger so uh kind of diameter for diameter something like a a length of hempex will have around a 500 kilogram breaking strength and something like a six millimeter length of jute rope natural jute rope will have a breaking strength of around 100 kilograms which is sometimes within the margin of error for you know i'm 95 kilograms so starting to suspend on chunks of jute starts to get a little bit edgy if you're a little bit not some dainty asian lady model Um, you know when you're a bit bit chonky like i am sometimes so the strength exists (laughs) in my rope bag i have both is the honest answer i keep my my bite sp my spun polyester that i tie most people with it goes in the washing machine regularly i suspend with it because it's stronger i use it as my daily driver rope i have some jute rope that i tie with because i like how fast it moves i like how it lays against the body a little bit nicer and i keep my juice a little bit thinner i keep my jute normally for people that i'm emotionally connected with because the ropes all uh, you know when you're tying with natural ropes they absorb some of that person not in some kind of hippie energy sense but the actual body oils and you know the person ends up inside the rope Um they're a pain to wash and it degrades the rope so my rope doesn't get washed it just becomes absorbed with the oil so that sounds really grim it's good for the ropes to absorb those oils and it gets softer and it breaks in so i keep that rope for people i'm i'm close emotionally with and i tie them with it they all have their different uses so yeah that's about where i'm up to Jute, hem, hemp hemp posh they're the four to go looking for um again it goes back to peer peer ropes if you can get out to peer ropes you can talk to people Um, People with their own ropes will talk to you for hours inevitably about their ropes and how they've treated it and what ends they've done on it. The rope geekery is a massive rabbit hole to go down. I mean, for that type of person who goes down geeky rabbit holes of of different ropes, that is.
0: And nylon rope can actually feel really, really nice against the skin. I'll just throw that out there,
2: you know. Mm. Oh, yeah. I missed nylon off there. Uh, so I don't tie with nylon, not for any magical purpose. It's just not something that I, I do. And the nylon rope holds dyes delightfully as well. So the nylon ropes get that really vivid colours, and they photograph really well, and they're soft. They give you that nasty rope burn. That's the downside with a lot of synthetic ropes: is the rope burn is, uh, is much much more than than natural ropes.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, I think I might have to look into getting some hemp because I, I, I like a slightly heavier line. I normally tie with jute and I don't have any hemp and I have some of your bite, which I feel is really nice. The bite is really nice to the touch, but it's um, a lot thicker than I normally tie with. Mm-hmm. So it will probably get used for maybe uplines potentially, mostly. And it feels lovely. Yeah.
2: That's what it's ideal for. Like, it is the perfect upline material. <laughs> Um, I spent ages going down my own rabbit hole of looking for the perfect upline material that is strong, soft, good to handle as a top. It has to fly through Caribbean as well. It has to be able to take that load, uh, really low elongation, um, a really high melting point, so it doesn't melt until like 260 degrees compared to like Hempex melts at 165, which sounds like excessively high, but when you're starting to run it through carabiners and you're running rope against rope, you mm. start to generate higher temperatures than you might expect. um So, I mean, self pimping, but um yeah, I love the bite <laughs> stuff. And basically, that's how I started off um making rope was just getting obsessive about it and then started selling rope to subsidize my own rope buying habits. Um it was an awful lot easier to import mm. in bulk and then sell what I wasn't using onto the local scene at basically cost price.
0: The worlds of craft and kink collide. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is how all, um call hand floggers started. It was essentially I was looking at things as like I want to build myself some stuff, but I need to buy so many supplies. In order to buy myself, build myself some stuff, I should build some stuff for some friends as well. Um And, and then you kind of lose control from there; and it
2: just becomes more of a thing, doesn't it? We've, we've both gone down those rabbit holes.
0: Put it this way: after you go to your munch and talk to a few people, you'll never see B and Q the same way again.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, B and Q is my favourite kink shop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Out of, out of all the sex shops in the world, B and Q is the is the highlight. I can't help walk down there.
1: What's good in being Q? What are your being Q go tos? We're plugging being now. <laughs> uh,
2: so I have ah, so I have I have problems like my my kink shopping is um uh, I'm a sucker for salvaged hunks of metal for impact toys. That's my go to. I've only got a few like crafted things. I've got floggers and single tails and rope are the three things that i have that are like i will pay money for for the perfect thing here pretty much everything else in my kit bag is um, a, a, a pneumatic breaker drill bit and um that chunk of um, chunk of rubber hosing that i found that just happened to look the right size just loads of bits and pieces that i've i've hoarded through what what are you pointing at?
1: Did we did we briefly meet at PlaySpace a couple of years ago? Probably. I don't I didn't recognize you but I think I recognized you, the contents of your kit bag. <laughs> yeah, I mean uh, it, it's a relatively unique I, I think I, I think I leaned over to you as you were doing some stuff with your kit bag, <laughs> and I was like, "What, what did you use that for?" And I think you had like the end of a pneumatic drill piece and a bit of scaffolding.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a certain look is uh, a, <laughs> a cut off chunk of scaffold pipe, but um, <laughs> but it does the job. What do you do with that? Hit people with it.
0: Which begs the question: if you were pair of overalls, torture (laughs) garden, would you be let in?
2: Oh, oh, we're going on the the latest drama, are we? This is a problem, you see, for rope stuff, especially, and I know we're going, we're going Mm. back to rope. So when I'm doing rope stuff, I get warm, like it's hard work as a rigger Mm -hmm. and I get, I get the sweats on. So it's no good me rigging in latex or something. I'd pass out. So if I'm rigging, I tend to be in like, well, I'll either wear my climbing trousers and a t-shirt or I'll be in yoga kit just to um, be able to move freely and to be able to, yeah, not massively overheat. Um, and then the question is like, is that kink wear? Because my, my fetish is the, my kink is the thing that I'm doing and I don't dress up necessarily to to do rope work. I mean, it's nice to dress up a little bit, but the functional wear for me is mm. is um, is so much more important. I've always been curious what would happen if I kind of turned up to a kink venue and then, yeah, you know, proclaimed that your kink is is dressing like a chav, um, you know, <laughs> pushing the boundaries of what's allowed. <laughs> I, but if if I can think of it, someone somewhere will have like. We'll have this as a as a as a fetish, of course. If I can imagine it, it'll be a fetish somewhere. And then, what do you say? How do you how do you build a a a policy around? Oh, you can't dress like that. It's it's very strange.
0: I've just got the image. Just got the image now: of and spandex. <laughs> just just full on eighties. Just out come the ropes. It's like Crowley's workout video from 1986.
2: Wow. I could get a headband, like the sweatbands and the wrist things.
0: Do it. Do it. Mm. That's what we want
2: to see. I'm going to make it a thing. Pierre Redding. Pierre Redding, I need my my 80s wristbands on. We joke and it's a good laugh, but,
1: you know, it's kind of, you know, it's been, you know, anybody who's, I think, on the UK and especially, you know, the... um, Sort of from Midland South, especially, will be aware that you know every so often dress codes that big clubs rears its ugly head as a, a thing that people are talking about. And you know, you make a really good point that you know there are people who are going to want to enjoy a night out of these venues, and and their kink isn't necessarily involved around. It isn't practical to dress in those ways, like you said, and is you know, it's a bit exclusionary, or I don't know. Well, of course, they're exclusionary, you know, they're um.
2: But I think if I was if I was going to a club like that, I'm going knowing that I'm expected to dress up. Mm, of course. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't go to a fancy restaurant in my rope gear. Um, yeah, well, I'd put a shirt on and pull a comb through my beard. Um there's a social expectation that you dress to fit the environment that you're going to. So you could almost say, look, well, you knew you were going to that club, you were gonna dress up mm. appropriately. Um so yeah, I probably wouldn't turn up to torture garden in my my comfy trousers and my my scruffy t-shirt because it's not appropriate for that venue yeah of course um i think a lot of the recent noise has been where people have followed Mm -hmm. dress codes and then it's uh not necessarily the dress codes that they were being excluded by but Mm. that's probably for
1: yeah that's a (laughs) a whole other thing isn't it and i think a lot more is gonna yeah well We'll leave that there. <laughs> I... But have you found it odd making that transition from, you know, not just rope wise, but making that transition back from virtual events into physical ones as we come to not the end of a pandemic, but a
2: different stage of? It's been really so that the virtual events initially, I would introduce them as though I was still at a peer event and I was still surrounded by people. Um, So it took me probably six months to get used to this idea of presenting to a screen where I couldn't get the same feedback. And that was quite challenging to get used to. I think dropping back the other way is easier because it's not a new thing, but, oh, am I looking forward to it? Like it's as someone teaching rope, the feedback of seeing people in front of you makes life so much more um, fluid. It makes the entire teaching experience more engaging because you can see where people are up to. Um, you can look at the expressions on people's faces and be like, OK, they're struggling a bit. I'll spend some time and I'll loop around and say hi and check in how they're doing. And the, the feedback cycle is so much more compressed that you can deliver content more effectively. You can teach better in person. Um so I'm looking forward to it I'm looking forward to getting back out and doing in person stuff Um, I think we'll still keep going on remote content because the ability to speak to a wider audience you know you can fit hundreds of people mm. at a virtual event because they can all be at home and they can be tying along in their comfy trousers on their beds in the space that works for them they haven't had to travel anywhere I've been able to present to people across the world who would never be able to see me. And equally, I've been able to attend events that I would never, I couldn't justify flying across to New York for a two-hour workshop session. Um, Like, it's just not, it's not practical. But in the pandemic, with people doing online content, I've been able to listen into those events. I've been able to learn from other people across the world who I would never normally get that level of access to. So it is still a thing. I think we'll move to some kind of hybrid, people attending events in person, people are still running virtual events. There is space for both of them. We're not forced into one or the other. Um, Everything can coexist.
0: I I think it'd be very sad to see the end of online events because it has made so much knowledge so much more accessible to people who traditionally haven't had access yeah. to that knowledge for any number of reasons. I mean, we don't need to to discuss in detail who exactly wasn't able to, to get access and why and all the rest of it. Again, that's dealt with more eloquently elsewhere, I feel. But I think it is, as you say, Crowley, a very useful resource that would be a real shame if people lose access to it.
2: Definitely, definitely.
0: Well, it's anything that makes education
1: more accessible, isn't it? You know, and, and seem less daunting. It can be, you know, we've spoken before about munchies and how it can be daunting turning up to a social event where you don't know anybody for the first time. You know, turning up to maybe a rope event where you know that you haven't got someone to go with and knowing that there's potentially, you know, in your mind, you're thinking, oh, my God, everyone's going to be paired up top and bottom. And I'm going on my own and I don't know anybody, that can be quite daunting. Whereas, you know, the entry level is so much easier to sit at home and go, well, I can just log on, you know, sitting in my living room alone. And if it's uncomfortable or anything, I can just log off again. You haven't made that commitment of traveling somewhere and turning up in person. And that, you know, and, and, and some people are gonna have, you know, some people might have been anxious about this before the pandemic. And a lot of people are coming out of lockdown, part whatever at this stage and and are having a higher level of social anxiety than they may have had pre-pandemic so you know if they were nervous about going maybe for the first time two years ago um they may be even more so now and it's just that lower barrier to entry do you know what time it is burns 9.33 <laughs> no <laughs> it's time to introduce growley to the encyclopedia of unusual sexual practices now this is a book that I discovered, I think it was in a secondhand bookshop, but it was so many years ago and I just gravitated towards it. It was about 15, 18 years ago, and it kind of sat in a drawer for a long time. And I'd occasionally get it out um and have a bit of a look through and a bit of a give it a bit of a side eye because there's some strange stuff in here. And actually unfortunately, I think you've missed a lot of the strangeness or, or this month skips a lot of the strangeness. So I apologise in advance, Rowley. We're on to O, and a lot of O seems to be taken up with orgasms, as if they have some sort of importance. To some people they might.
2: <laughs> they get fun.
1: It, it lists... It's not what we're here for? <laughs> it's not what I'm here with you for right now. Uh, <laughs> but if, I've been missold. <laughs> but if someone's offering... Um, no, I, I'm going to pick a couple out. It, it goes on to sort of talk about lots of different types of orgasms, and There are a couple I've picked out, Um, one in particular is because it kind of spoke to me a little bit about, kind of related to maybe the kind of experience during some of the play I do perhaps, and some of the play that maybe you guys have engaged in if you do sort of edge play, as it were, or stuff that maybe causes a extra release of serotonin, Um, altered state orgasms. So... According to the encyclopedia, and as we know, the encyclopedia is always right, an altered state orgasm is believed to occur when a brain's level of serotonin is excessively high. The effects of an altered state of consciousness or near-death experience (laughs) have been divided into components, and the person may experience all or a combination of these. What do you make of what I've said so far? Disturbing. <laughs> but do you see how it can, you see how I, I was thinking maybe, you know, along the lines of um extreme subspace, perhaps. Um I don't know if any of you has ever been in or been with a partner who is non-verbal, like we we're saying earlier. Um if you look in the, you know, if you open the eyes a bit, you'll see a rolled back eye. And and they've definitely achieved an altered state and you know that there is a flood of serotonin and amongst potentially other things going on because of the activities you've been doing together. So I thought that was actually, although, you know, it talks about a near-death experience, um, I probably wouldn't have made that correlation without the book. Don't know what you guys are thinking. Compromising feelings of peace, joy and cosmic unity. That sounds like subspace-ish, doesn't it, for some people? Yes. I've been there. It was good. Yeah, you know, altered perception, out-of-body experience.
2: Yeah, I could definitely... I can definitely see the the subspace kind of um, parallel, which is I feel like subspace is definitely an altered state.
1: I shouldn't judge, but maybe kind of like the soft social media crowd, like your Instagram, you know your 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 Bumbles or whatever in you know your Bumbles or whatever your, your my your my my whatever whatever the people are using now to sort of social media on um you know i've seen you know posts about subspace like it's when you're in the mood of a sub you know when i'm in my subspace as opposed to subspace the altered state caused by an intense experience and an overload you do you know what i'm on about do you you see what i've two things I'm on about have you heard the other version quite possibly yeah um but yeah, no, definitely. And the other one I picked out from orgasms was astral orgasms, just because it sounded fun. Let's see what you go. An astral orgasm refers to a person's consciousness leaving their physical body and traveling in the astral body. The astral, I, mean, I like this. Yeah, I can see your eyes widening, Growly. You're having one now. An astral projection is practiced by several occult groups. According to these people, it is possible to teach steps one can use to project oneself onto the astral plane at will. However, we are referring here to the unintentional experience of travelling through the universe or to distant areas of the Earth caused by an orgasm. Have you been there, Burns?
0: No, but uh, perhaps if we get to an astronaut on, maybe they'd be... Do you imagine that? You, you, you know, someone, someone at NASA sneaks off for a cheeky wank, and then suddenly they're on Mars. <laughs> I refuse
1: to believe that nobody has had an orgasm in space. Do you think it'd get messy? Someone must have done it. But somebody must have. The, the Russians
2: have been up there for ages at a given time. Do you think you could self-propel yourself, like floating around? Would it not push you backwards? <laughs> Just one good one. If you're a Peter,
1: if you can go and just go and go. across. Oh god,
0: there's 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 the next Star Trek film, sorted. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: That's the the climax of the scene. <laughs>
1: oh um we're going to go on to oh we're going to keep on oh we're going to get off of orgasms for a bit because this is something that you can come into play with rope sometimes and and i know the immediate one people are going to think of is very dangerous but oxygen regulation um because there's a lot of ways that you can control oxygen regulation from corseting which can be done with rope to be gags to, you know all gags which you know can be done with ropes you know you, unless you're very confident, you probably want to avoid the neck, even then you want to avoid the neck. Um, you'd probably say the same or similar, wouldn't you, Crowley? Um
2: I would always coach significant caution when playing with neck rope and breath play and cutting off oxygen because it's where the dangerous things lie. Mm. That said, neck rope's fucking hot. <laughs> and safely done and risk aware and with everyone consenting um yeah there's some there's some fun times to be had there but that falls into the uh, it falls into that scary space of of go and get some instruction from someone mm. who has suitable um qualifications and understanding and t- can teach you how to do oxygen restriction carefully
1: was going to add like a note of caution for the listener that growly you know does say growly says neck rope is very hot and he may find neck rope very hot but growly is also somebody who teaches and has been doing rope at a a very competent level for a while so if anyone's listening and thinks that neck rope is hot it's only because growly's hot with rope
2: (laughs) yeah i mean uh, me and my partners find neck rope hot. that's what i should probably preface rather than all neck rope is hot
1: but like the I, I can't remember what it's called because of me and japanese words but the shrimpy tie
2: ah uh, yeah so it's not just neck rope so the shrimp tie is 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 really good because it's um and i like ties like this that are made out of building blocks and i think um most rope starts with really simple concepts you know you you go to your first beginner session you learn a single column you learn some wraps and realistically that's all you need to go and have a good time so the shrimp tie is, and you can kind of try it on yourself if you're sat at home somewhere safe, um, is a cross-legged tie. So you, you can kind of sit cross-legged um, with the, the legs bound into that cross-legged position. And then you put a chest harness on, so it just wraps around the chest. And then you tie a line from the chest to the ankles and you cinch it down so the person kind of curls up like a shrimp. And there's no neck rope going on. There's nothing around the neck. But what happens is your diaphragm's compressed and you can't open and close your, your your rib cage can't move as easily and it becomes breathless and harder to breathe and a little bit panic sets in and oh there's so much like delicious bad sensations for a bottom. And it was used as part of torture. Like it, it was a um the shrimp tie was a, a a classical Japanese torture um, to put someone into that position and have them suffer and suffer until they tell you what they wanted or admitted to a crime or similar um, but from a mechanics point of view of needing to learn a complicated tie it's still just uh, you know, a couple of knots a couple of wraps um, most of the rope is easier than you think
1: Burns, Burns, I was going to say Burns, you educated me recently on something. And Grail just reminded me, um, you know, you were saying that, that that Thai has its origin in Japanese torture. You know, where does a lot of a Japanese traditional shibari have its origin from? Because Burns, we, we touched on this briefly in uh, message and chat a little while ago um, with regards to, you know, sex work, porn, torture. You know, and I think there's a lot of myths around the origin as well. Is there there myths or is it Chinese whispers or Japanese whispers? Yeah, there's ah, Japanese whispers.
2: Oh, dear. So I think as an erotic art form, it's almost made out to be some ancient practice and that it goes back centuries. And these are, you know, the Takatikota is some mythical tie that has been handed down from generation to generation. But realistically, it, it, It sometimes only goes back a few years for some of these ties. And as an entire practice, it goes back decades. And, you know, if you're stretching the definition, you can go back to the 1800s or the early 1900s. So you've had a lot of erotic stories of, in the Japanese world, of geishas running away. um, uh, And then they felt pleasure as they were bound for for running away, and these kind of twisty stories in that kind of time of the the early 1900s. So there's a few different angles to come to of where current rope bondage came from. So we had the concept of ho-jujitsu, which is the martial art, and it it kind of translates down to the the policeman style, which was rope as a material was plentiful in, in Japan. Like, you could get hold of it easily. It was around, it was a resource that was easily available. Steel and iron on the other hand was not. And so uh, people learnt to to use what they had around them as, as most cultures will. So how Jitsu or the policeman's rope was using a rope to restrain transport and move around suspects and criminals in the Middle Ages and the early modern periods. And it isn't a sensuous thing. It's not sexy. It's just mechanical. It's just a useful tool. And it had some interesting aspects. It didn't have any knots in there. So to be tied up using knots would kind of signify that you were guilty because you'd been tied up. So the ho didn't have any knots in it. It was just wraps and twists and frictions because that's not as shameful. So it's kind of a little bit gentler to the person if they're just a suspect at the moment, and they're not necessarily guilty. And there were some interesting translations of the law enforcement manuals that were made, um, that had the rules of you can't let the prisoner slip out of the the restraints. You can't cause them any injury, physical or mental. You can't let other people see the techniques and you have to make the result beautiful. Um, so this was one of the rules for Ho Jiu Jitsu was that other people shouldn't be able to see how it works and the result should be beautiful. and and elegant so you end up with these ties in jujitsu that have like a single rope that crosses across the front of the body anyone seeing it from the front can't tell what's going on and at the back you have these precisely engineered forms that are just enough to to make the job work kind of going forwards through time then you end up with torture in the japanese edo period which is kind of that 1860s kind of line and there's some really horrible torture mechanics that go into there um so it was a, a form of restraint for prisoners but it was a torture technique so they had the the flogging that was involved they had uh, kind of restraint on knees with arms bind on kind of zigzags and then pile stones on on thighs which is awful the shrimp tie was kind of the third level of of torture which is this um legs bound and then chest bound to the legs to make it uh really painful and that kind of prawn all, all tied up and it was the prawn tie because the person goes the color of a prawn like they go red and purple and it's just it's all the bad things and you can you know cause a lot of damage that way and then a suspension by the wrists behind the back which is is really painful for anyone who's kind of tried out strapado bondage um your wrists behind your back and your elbows behind your back and then lifted above your head is is awful and you get to that popping joints out and all the bad things and as soon as there are bad things eventually people will fetishize it um because because humans are awful and we find filth and excitement in everything but this kind of specialization you don't really see until again that kind of 1860s almost nineteen hundred you see pictures coming out of japan of people suffering in rope except it's a little bit too sexy you get the idea that these hoju ties have been changed and rather than single ropes wrapped around the body we now use double ropes to make it sustainable and something that you can do and so this art form of what was initially almost torture rope mm. um became twisted into a central art form and so you still have rendering whoever your captive is powerless and helpless mm. you still have the aesthetic aspect so it still has to be pretty um but you then start to add in an erotic feeling of the ropes on the skin, and so some of the traditional, Jap- say traditional, again we're talking like 1900s, the Japanese ties and the structures that you see are highlighting specific pressure points and um, the healing points on the body, and you get the the different aspects starting to weave each other together. But it's all on the mind. It's still all on stillness and beauty um there's a little bit of shame play in there Mm. so we have that kind of the sadomasochism meets the sensuous and erotic stimulation and they collide at that kind of 20th century the manga starts to come out bondage clubs start to happen um all of the the collision of cultures result in what we now see as a shibari
1: you know, while some people think of it as an ancient, you know, ancient Japanese art, really, we're only a couple of generations from from the ogs who kind of laid the main framework for where we are now.
2: Yeah, and we're still in a place where ties are being constructed, so we've not hit the end of the evolution of, of shivari So even today, people are experimenting with new mechanisms, new ties, new ways of forming. Uh, hip harnesses and chest harnesses and tweaking and iterating on these things so 10 years back I was being taught at EK that I would now look at and be like well that's not as good mechanically as a tie as types of tie that now can be taught and shown what's going on and we know that because Mm. of of the escalation of people tying and learning and sharing we can kind of go if all we do is tweak that friction slightly it now performs a little bit better under load. It doesn't slip up or we can make these tweaks to make it fit more body types or, you know, every time we do that, these ropes distort in a, in a slightly more unpleasant way. So we can change how this cinch works a little bit. And then that new, more improved version becomes taught and handed on to people. So it's not some mythical ancient art. And neither is it a fixed point in time where we say everything from here to here is shibari and everything from here on is some weird unknown. It is still an evolving, growing, fluctuating art form that will continue to grow because people still continue to push out boundaries and try new things and learn together. It will keep growing, um, which is what's really exciting. Like it's it's not a fixed point. It's something that you can get involved in and be part of shaping culture for future generations
1: well no I I agree with you and I, and I think you're right you know we're it's not stopped changing I think we're probably at a very exciting time within the, the moment as it becomes more continues to become more open to people more accessible through technology through other means Um, you know knowledge becomes more readily available as more people like yourself you know take an approach of Let's not use. Let's demystify it. Let's make it accept accessible through the kind of language we use and the way that we teach. You know, it, it's gonna it's gonna draw more people in, which is gonna lead to more revolution. Should we do a few more from the book, Burns? Do you want one or two more? Or are you are you aching to get your Jack Naughty on?
0: I think we neatly looped back around to rope, so I think it's maybe a nice place to to end there. You want you want a Jack and Naughty? Go on then, go on then. Oh, have you, have you
1: heard Burns' Giaconautis before?
0: Yeah. Right, so, continuing with the Bad Sex in Fiction Awards, we have the 1998 winner, Sebastian Fox, with an excerpt from Charlotte Gray. It seemed incredible to her that this bodily feeling was so specific when her purpose in it all was to use the act only as a means to some vague, profounder union far removed from flesh and sheets and physical sensation. Meanwhile, her ears were filled with the sound of a soft but frantic gasping and it was some time before she identified it as her own. I'm sorry, but how do you struggle to identify your own
1: gasping?
0: Also, the idea of sex being removed from flesh is really quite worrying, and, dare I say, Puritan. I don't like that. Um... I'm not surprised that won a Bad Sex and Fiction Award. It's awful and it doesn't inspire you to, you know, read that and think, oh, you know what, I really want to do that myself, you know. I really want to go for a piece of that, you know. Or it's like when you had Growley talking about Pirate Role earlier, you might think, oh, actually, I quite fancy that. That sounds like it could be quite good fun.
2: I don't know. Works for me. <laughs>
0: Perhaps uh, time to wrap up with some final thoughts.
2: So I think uh, I think my final thoughts on rope and take home is to focus less on specific ties and structures and words, and that people new to rope just get used to handling rope tying enjoying the experience enjoying learning together and enjoying doing and putting rope on each other Um, there's a lot of mysticism there's a lot of gatekeeping involved and it's really important to understand that rope is at its heart not complicated Um, it's a massive rabbit hole you can go down that rabbit hole as far as you want you can take it as far as you want But at the end of the day, if you are staying safe and having fun, then you are doing rope fine. Um, Get out to peer sessions, go and get instruction, read books, watch videos, learn and do and enjoy the exploration of it. That's where the fun is. Stay safe, have fun.
0: Great message. And don't forget, don't forget the aftercare as uh, there's nothing quite like a hot chocolate after you've had a lovely session. It'll warm you up, give that lovely little burst of sugar and just that cosy, warm feeling inside, that feeling of being loved and cared for that is so special.
2: I really fancy a hot chocolate now. (laughs)
1: <laughs> he has that effect on you, doesn't he? Um, no, I, you know, I'm know, i just going to round up by saying thank you once again. And I think my final thoughts are, you know, you're absolutely right. And and again, I'm probably stealing or par- badly paraphrasing you when I think you said once on a class, the only bad rope is dangerous rope.
2: I can't remember saying it, but I'll take I'll take the uh, I'll take gratitude for it.
1: Do you know what I would? Uh, someone's going to hear this, and they're going to say, "Actually, that was one of mine," and I'll be like, oh, "Bollocks!"
2: <laughs> but I agree. But I agree.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, but but you agree, and and you know, if if and if anyone was listening to this was like I was prior to sort of engaging more with specifically the rope community within the wider kink community, of feeling a bit standoffish. You know, feeling like maybe you don't belong in rope, and I still, you know, I'm still, you know, you don't identify as a rigger and I'm still wouldn't say I'm a rigger I'm just somebody who wanted to go along and socially learn more about doing the things that I already enjoy doing in various safe ways of doing them so I would say to anyone who thinks you know all oh, ropes not for me I don't you know it's not quite who I am you know just just have a look engage with people you'll probably find that your community level rope is a lot less daunting than some of the stuff you see online um and you know uh, thank you for anyone who's listened, and another thank you again to Growley for joining us. This has been Varying Degrees, a BDSM podcast. I've been Cool Hands.
0: Burns has usually been Burns. I have been Burns, and indeed, thank you, Growly, for being Growley and thank you all for listening.